0: I'm David McGee, and this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Sometimes I think that because when someone dies of an opioid overdose, uh, it gains a lot of attention, and, and the death is heartbreaking, and it is. But when we lose people to death, um, you know, it, it gains a lot of attention. Sometimes, though, people can be losing their joy and be struggling with addiction uh, to other drugs, not just opiates. And that's the way it is with uh, stimulants, like Adderall, for example, or vivance, both of which... I had uh, sadly a real personal story with where I became, Alexis, addicted to um, prescription um, Adderall and then Vivants. I misused them, didn't follow doctor's instruction. And I did not die of an overdose, but I can tell you that I ruined my life and a lot of people's lives around me. And so. As we we see that epidemic really increasing across the country, I think on the uh, Mayo Lab podcast, it's such a critical story to delve into because stimulants, for example, are one of the most prescribed drugs for young people in this country.
1: They are, and I hear people talking about it all the time of Adderall and different types of stimulants. And so I'm excited to have this conversation because I don't think it lives just on a college campus. I don't think it starts just on a college campus, and that's what we're here to talk about today. I,
0: I think on this day, honestly, it, when I, when I ask students all over the country, High School or colleges or universities when i when i 'm asking them in casual conversations about the drugs that are misused the most there's the obvious alcohol and marijuana, but stimulants right at the top mm-hmm. and and, and mm-hmm. increasingly it 's moved right next to maybe if not. I had a student tell me one time they say, "Hey, if I go uh, misuse alcohol, my parents can smell it on my breath mm-hmm. if i 'm jacked up on some Adderall, somebody else's adderall they don 't even know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they do not." No, So we decided part of what we do on the Mail Lab podcast is bring in some researchers, bring in voices to really help us understand because these aren't our our ideas. It's about bringing in the information where the facts are the facts are the facts so that parents and students and others in communities can make the best decisions for their lives going forward. So we think we found just the perfect guest to talk about uh, stimulants and other prescription drugs and how they are misused and some of the impacts of that.
1: I think we have found the perfect guest. Dr. Sujith Ramachandran is an assistant professor of pharmacy administration and assistant director for the Center of Pharmaceutical Marketing and Management at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. And we're so excited to have him here. Did I get your name right?
2: You absolutely got it right. Wonderful. And if it is easier, my students call me Dr. Ram, and that is much easier to say than my full name, and that's okay with me.
0: The Integrative Life Network was created as a family of intimate, trauma-focused treatment centers for mental health, substance use, and intimacy disorders. With locations in Nashville, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, and Boulder, Colorado, the Integrative Life Network's specialized programs aim not just to treat the problematic behaviors you can see, but also the underlying trauma that's driving that behavior. If you feel like your mental health and behavior around substances, pornography, or sex is becoming unmanageable, it may be time to seek help. Call the experts at Integrative Life Network today for a free phone consultation to see if they have a program that may be right for you. They work with most major insurances on an out-of-network basis and have a full continuum of inpatient programs from two-week intensives, 30-day residential options, to extended care programming. Talk to an admissions specialist today at 615-610-5399 or email them directly at info at integrativelifenetwork.com. And see our website at themayolab.com for more information.
1: You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode.
0: Dr. Rahm, that's a good one. I love that. And uh, so, so help us understand, um, well, first of all, how, how did you get involved in um, how you know, stimulants are misused in the impact? Tell us about your background with that.
2: Um, so, so the story here is actually quite a little, uh, it was accidental because I, I like to call myself an accidental academic. I was not going <laughs> to be in academia for the longest time. But as I was finishing my PhD, I realized that I enjoy doing this work more than anything else out there. And that is almost also how my interest in stimulant research started because my original interest was in mental health Mm. and substance Mm. use. I was specifically thinking about about, uh, needle exchange clinics, heroin use, and I realized that to do the work that I wanted to do as part of this was much more taxing and resource intensive as a grad student, and Mm. I did not have Mm -hmm. those (laughs) efforts. So my my kind advisors helped redirect me to identifying prescription stimulants, and I have really discovered... Uh, The fact that this is a huge problem and it's not being talked about on the level that we see other substance use or Mm -hmm. even opioids. Mm -hmm. So I've ended up refocusing most of my efforts here because I have recognized the scale and Mm. the importance of the problem.
0: I'm so thankful for that work, because, as I said on our introduction, you know people die from opioid use, and it's very sad, and it's unfortunate. I've lost a son to it. It was extremely sad and extremely unfortunate. but what I always talk about is what I call the walking dead mm-hmm. you know they they they're still alive and they're still with us, but substances have just reached in and changed their how their brain works, how they're functioning daily, and I feel like honestly. From getting into schools and universities, and even in the adult population, I see an absolute crisis of of stimulant abuse and over prescription misuse. And then we even get into the counterfeit drugs that that just barely seems on the radar. First of all, when you when you get into the research, I mean, do what? What do we know about this? Are are, are they being? Do we think they're being over prescribed? For instance,
2: so. Can I answer something else before I say this? Because I think you made a really good point. When we think about opioids, the first thing we think about is all of the overdoses and the death numbers that are on CDC, every news website. You know, we recognize the epidemic. It's all over the media. People don't think of stimulants resulting in the same thing. And that's actually incorrect because a growing proportion, and today a majority of opioid-related overdose deaths also have stimulants. So uh, there are studies out there that have looked at worse stimulants present in the bloodstream at the time of an overdose and the co-occurrence of opioids and stimulants at the over at the moment of overdose has increased exponentially in fact if you will enter if you will let me do this for a second yes I want to show just how much this has increased in the past um, three-year period between Mm -hmm. 2015 and 2017 three-year period, like 2000, sorry, a four-year period between 2015 and 2019, opioid overdose deaths increased from about 30,000 to 50,000 in this country, a big overdose. But stimulant overdose deaths, where a stimulant was present at the time of the overdose, increased from just over 5,000 to over 15,000. Wow. That's three times the number, right. but who's talking about it? Right. And our first reaction to thinking stimulants are being overprescribed is that is that walking dead phenomenon, which I think is absolutely accurate. Don't get me wrong, but there are an increasing number of overdoses, ER visits, and hospital admissions happening because of prescription stimulants that are not being talked about. Mm. The number of stimulant-related emergency room visits between the same 2015 and 2019 four-year periods has quadrupled. But that does not make headlines as much as opioid overdoses resulting in deaths.
0: And at that same time period, we've seen a drastic... increase in the amount of, say, Adderall and Vivance prescriptions written. I'm not here to pick on those drugs. What I tell everybody, I say, look, I mean, drugs that come to market in this country, they come for good reason, mm-hmm. uh, They because they're needed. The issue we face is we're talking about overprescription and misuse. And, and look, I'm not the expert here. How do I know if we face overprescription here or not? What I do know is that we have a in, 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 in recent years, we've had a drastic rise in the number of stimulant prescriptions written to young people. And therefore, we, we can expect to see more use simply because there's more in the marketplace.
2: Absolutely. Uh, every stimulant prescription has what prescribers usually assess called an abuse liability. Associated with it. Every time you write a prescription, you assess that liability and you want to make sure that the person you are prescribing those medications to knows how to use it and how not to use it. Um, and just writing a prescription can have a liability, but providing appropriate education and appropriate follow up, you can minimize that liability, right? But as we write more and more of those prescriptions, we increase the risk that they get diverted or they get used in in ways that are not medical if you will.
0: And do we even fully understand what goes on with a young person on so so I was with a high school student uh recently and he walked me through um he said I really can relate to your what you talked about me uh, dealing with Adderall uh misuse because I went through the same thing. He said the problem is I got a doctor's prescription in high school. I didn't like it. It was very strong, but my it, my parents wanted me on this medication because my grades always went up. They did. But it, it, he said, you know, it impacted me so that um, he said I didn't like how it felt when the medication wore off. So I began to use a lot of marijuana to try to um, help me come off of the stimulant because I couldn't even get to bed. And I, I just don't know. That this story of, of what's happening uh, to young minds and how, how the impact can have a ripple effect, I'm just not sure we understand that. So, what type of research have you done so far in this area and what, what, what areas are you looking into?
2: Uh, You're right in that this is a very complex area between societal, parent pressures, educational pressures, and how these medications are used. My research has primarily focused on the fact that there are an increasing number of prescriptions being written for these medications. But if you talk to the prescribers writing these prescriptions, often they say, I feel the need to write these prescriptions because these kids are coming to me telling me problems that I the only way I know to treat it and the thing they expect out of me is a prescription Mm -hmm. for Adderall, right? So when we started the project, we said, how do we minimize risk of non-medical use or diversions of prescription stimulants? And the way to minimize that risk was to have fewer prescriptions written that were Mm -hmm. unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And the way to write fewer prescriptions was to stop misdiagnosing ADHD. And that's an important one because ADHD is a very, very complex mental health condition to diagnose. It's one that is most often a primary care provider cannot diagnose accurately. And you need a specially trained psychologist to diagnose ADHD accurately. Anybody that's had a proper ADHD diagnosis knows that it's a two to three hour process where they take multiple assessments and a battery of instruments before that ADHD can be accurately diagnosed. So if you go to the small town Mm. family doctor in your your hometown and he writes you a prescription after seeing Mm. you for 15 minutes, Mm
1: -hmm. I
2: question the validity of that Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Yeah, right. Because
0: let's take grades as an example let's take grades as an example all of us humans are created differently right so so we we laugh on here sometimes i say like don't hire me to be your algebra <laughs> teacher because i don't my, my brain does real numbers very well i could get through stacks of paper i do creative things well I don't do algebra well. I just wasn't created so that my mind can look at, you know, algebra equations and see the unknown. I deal with real people. I can see you, I can touch you, I can I can almost see your algorithm or, you know, someone's algorithm of who they are, but I can't see that unknown and so i think about young people that but but you know they will get better grades so if we're if that is our sole objective it's easy i guess to walk into that doctor's office and say hey, you know, for me, it was I walked in and I said, they said, what's going on with you? And I said, hey, for the first time, I can't finish a book I've got on deadline. Now, there were a lot of underlying reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But I walk out with an Adderall prescription, which began to turn my life upside down, because I don't think I was really even a candidate for it. So it all goes poorly. Um, How do how might we communicate with physicians? I mean, what's our way through in solving that? I mean, we're, we're having this conversation, which we hope parents are listening to, but as you look about in the field, because there has been this obsession over the opiates very, for very good reason, but here is a dramatic problem just that has fully blossomed across this country.
2: I think uh, healthcare practitioners are under a lot of pressure to give the patients what they want, so that's part of the problem. I think what this podcast is doing is great in that it changes the conversation and the culture. There is nothing I hate more than that everybody has a little ADHD culture. I mm. think that mm. not, <laughs> not only does it, yes. you know, potentially harm people, it actually takes away and minimizes the problems
1: of people that actually have ADHD. It's almost like it's cool to have ADHD. Yeah. I mean,
2: you know, I get distracted between... Instagram or Facebook and messages and email too. But that does not Mm. mean Mm -hmm. I have ADHD. And having discipline in how you use your devices and technology Mm -hmm. is different from having ADHD. Mm. And as part of my dissertation, I realized this quickly because I had to interview students with and without ADHD. My interviews of students with ADHD would take two hours and we would sometimes not get to the question. Because these students, I remember one particular example where a student did not take their meds that day because of some other reasons. And I knew immediately they had ADHD as opposed to the, hey, everybody has a little ADHD culture that I think we are at mm-hmm. sometimes today.
0: Well, when I go look at, and we've talked on this podcast before, and in an upcoming episode we'll deal with it. You know, Alexis, we talk a lot about sleep. You <laughs> like to sleep a lot. I like to sleep a lot. And and and, and look, I'm just, I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, but I'm I'm a journalist. So by trade, I can get into Google and go. And so I, I look up sleep deprivation symptoms, and people will hear me talk about this often. Way at the top of the chart is sleep deprivation often can often closely mimic symptoms of adhd you can't focus you can't look at and so i think about all these students out there and studies also show oh by the way they're Mm -hmm. sleep deprived Mm -hmm. and so maybe there's some correlation yet our our solution is giving maybe many that don't qualify as you say they haven't been through these battery tests and so number one it, 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 it's not almost fair to those who really are suffering because it's throwing everybody in this pool. And number mm-hmm. two, mm-hmm. it could change important personality characteristics of a young person or an adult mm-hmm. who doesn't even have the symptom, the, the actual symptoms. It may be a byproduct of other things, as you say, distraction, lack of sleep, or so many other things, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's, let's be honest, it's not cool to talk about sleep. It's not cool to say, "Hey, I went to bed." <laughs> right. I, I told David this today. I went to bed at seven o'clock one night last week. It's not cool to have that conversation it's cool and in talk my game. about it. I mean, it's pretty cool, especially me, for teens. I don't. It's not their first thing because they have all these devices. They have these things they want to do. Cultures telling them this success looks like X, Y, Z. It's almost as if stimulants are what they think is that golden key to success, whether that be grades finishing a paper, finishing a book, in David's case. It's almost like that's an excuse for them. Mm
2: -hmm. It's a hyper-competitive environment we live in today. I I teach in the pharmacy school, and I see students that are incredibly smart, that are stressed out because they're afraid of the student's loan they're taking. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of not making it through all A's. And these are incredibly smart kids. They are smarter than I was when I was in college, Mm -hmm. right? And amount of stress they take, I I feel for them, and then they feel the need to cope unhealthily mm-hmm. using Adderall or stimulants sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then when you add that on to the everybody has a little ADHD culture, the leap to oh my god, I think I have ADHD. So instead of just buying Adderall from my neighbor in the other dorm, right. why don't I just go to the doctor, get a prescription that my insurance or my dad will help pay for and now i have a whole month supply that i don't have to go buying from mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. from my neighbor mm-hmm. and that's where we get to the misdiagnosis problem mm-hmm.
0: and we've seen such a rapid rise that uh, the stats i've seen on how many prescriptions of stimulants we had say 20 years ago i mean it's 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 threefold fourfold up and and mm-hmm. it's pretty dramatic and you think that was the it's either a case of we are over prescribing or the entire culture had ADHD all along, and we didn't know. But then, if that were the case, that would be normal anyway. And who? Why? Why do any of us need it? If we all have it, why do any? why don't we just take it off the shelf? You know.
2: Yeah, ADHD is what uh, scientists would call a bimodal condition. As in, there is a lot of underdiagnosis of ADHD because of the stigma with mental health, the stigma with not performing well in the classroom. But there is also overdiagnosis because of the hyper hypercompetitive. Uh, pressured mm-hmm. environment that academics usually work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that bimodal condition leads to both problems. So any conversation we have around this today should not be invalidating people that actually have the mm-hmm. problem, right. but also recognize that misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis with over-prescribing of Adderall is a real problem in combination with that.
0: And one of the challenges we run into when you have overprescribing is it floods the marketplace. Then when you have misuse, it's traded around. Well, then when we go through periods like earlier this year where there's an actual Shortage. (laughs) There is an actual shortage of people who need it can't get it. The demand is so high, and other factors. It's kind of the world as we've seen since COVID, where things just happen, and we get in short supply. Well, this in this instance was Adderall, Mm -hmm. and um, what happens is then it's in use, and and people turn to the street what they're getting if they're buying it from friends nowadays. Um, they've been desensitized to think it's okay to misuse it. But now then when they go try to misuse it and buy it outside of their own doctor's prescription, more often than not these days, it's a counterfeit pill. And so they're not even getting Adderall. They're getting something made with subpar um, you know, substances that may also very likely have fentanyl in it, which could be highly addictive and are deadly. And I have encountered that not just a few times in the past year, for example. So that's kind of this, you know, over-diagnosis culture and how it it it's kind of like the domino. It's like once it starts, you know, one falls, the rest of them kind of begin to fall and you have a much bigger problem. Some of your work is also centered around opioids. What What type of work have you done there
2: Uh, Around opioids, we've done a good bit of work in older adults. Some of this work was led by Dr. Yang at the School of Pharmacy, who's championed safety of opioid use for chronic pain. Because opioids, like chronic pain also, have people that actually need the medication and actually need it for their functionality, need it for their quality of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But overuse is dangerous. And so is also... uh, inadequate or improper tapering of opioid use. So patients may be on opioid use for a long term, but then they get tapered off because of all this media buzz around and the increasing policing of prescribers. And the tapering itself causes adverse reactions where we've entered this world where we've got to find the balance. Overuse is bad. Underuse or underprescribing is Mm -hmm. also bad. And we need to find the balance for the best of the patient.
0: Hi, I'm David McGee. Now, more than ever before, parents need better information about the challenges facing their children, what sorts of issues to expect and when, and the warning signs to look for. From anxiety and depression to addiction, eating disorder and loneliness, students and their families are facing a mental health and substance misuse epidemic that requires new guidance. My new book, Things Have Changed, what every parent and educator should know about the student mental health and substance misuse crisis, offers a clear roadmap for helping students find the joy they want and deserve. Head over to themayolab.com to sign up for our newsletter and find a link to pre-order my new book. And everyone who signs up for our newsletter and pre-orders a copy of Things Has Changed will receive a digital copy of my expanded student toolbox. Visit themayolab.com today.
1: You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode.
0: I talked to a cancer patient the other day, and they've been undergoing a lot of pain in the bone type thing, and they said... Um, I appreciate all the work you're doing around substance misuse. He said, I sure wish it wasn't making it so hard to get my painkillers because I'm, 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 I'm in my 60s. I've got a difficult case of cancer, and I'm having to go in, and the doctor's almost afraid to give me those painkillers. So, I mean, it is <laughs> a – the education, you know, is so important for, for us to understand where the problems happen, but also where the problems are not
2: Absolutely. We have been working with the Mississippi Division of Medicaid for the past decade or so. Part of the initiatives that the School of Pharmacy is partnering with the Medicaid division is with education related to opioid prescribing. And we've also been discussing with the Department of Health now to try and expand that, not just to Medicaid doctors, but all doctors around Mississippi to try and communicate what the importance of opioid prescribing is, how to make sure it is used safely, but also that if your patient needs it, you are not the one denying them Mm -hmm. from it because sometimes you need it for maintaining a quality of life.
1: Mm hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in your dissertation work, you found there's almost some tools that you found in it to how to help doctors prescribe properly.
2: Yeah. So our dissertation work was focused around how to help family doctors, those family prescribers in small towns that don't have access to a mental health care provider. And we said the best way to help these individuals is to come up with a tool so they can identify who needs to be diverted to a mental health care provider before any subsequent intervention can take place, right? Mm -hmm. And we had developed as part of that dissertation an instrument that we call the Subtle ADHD Malingering Screener. It's basically a questionnaire with 10 questions on it that can help identify if the person in front of this doctor is giving responses that don't align with what we typically think of as ADHD. And if they don't align, that doesn't mean this individual was lying, Mm -hmm. just that this individual may need more detailed evaluation before you write them a script for Adderall. Mm -hmm. And that might be for a whole variety of reasons, part of which we've discussed already is people believing that they have ADHD because of the environment and the structure of their lives. Um, But this instrument is freely available today. And I've had one of the greatest joys in my career is every two to three weeks, I get an email from somebody around the world saying, can you give me the subtle ADHD malingering screener? And do I have to pay for it? Mm. And I get to tell them, you don't have to pay for it here, you can have it and you can use it. And and we've been continuing to do more research on it, and I think more research is needed, of course. Mm-hmm. But that definitely is one of my joys every time I get an email like that.
0: That's incredible. So is that on people find you through their website to get this, or how, how does this take place?
2: So most of the time when people do find it and send me emails, it's because we published a paper in 2019 in a journal called Assessment mm-hmm. talking about our development of this instrument. But uh, the instrument itself is available on my website, mm-hmm. drsujitram.com. If you go to the resources section there at the bottom mm-hmm. of the page, is a link to the uh, study itself. Mm-hmm. And the scale is free to use. We... Recommend caution. We recommend being careful to prescribers when they use instruments like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, we are not looking to make money out of this. Our wow. goal is to help prescribers and clinicians all over the world. And we've got people from Canada, Australia, Europe that that email me from time to time and tell us how much they've used it. And it always brings me a little bit of joy. Wow.
0: And, and also, listeners can visit the mayolab.com where we will have a link to your website. Uh, So and uh, people could then find more information there. You know, it's so interesting because before 1970 and I, I was born in 1965, I realize I'm the oldest one in this room and I'm kind of an old guy now but this is in my realm. And before 1970, the diagnosis of ADHD was rare for school children. I mean, it was almost non-existent. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder, lexis I mean, it, it, this did we kind of, whatever happened in colleges for admissions, the thing that we kind of got obsessed about in the 80s and 90s and parents are all about what college can you get to and what, it, 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 something flipped to? because, frankly, when I was in school, I mean, it, it, it was okay if you weren't just making straight A's, I don't, I don't, I think there's some stigma that I'm not sure people feel that is okay anymore, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's this weird, and we talk about it a lot of what is the definition of success? Um, And that pressure is getting put on students younger and younger and younger. And what we've been talking about, the societal pressure and just trying to fit in. And I just, I do not, I don't know where, where things switched and how we've, how we got here. That's what we're trying to figure out. But there has been this this pressure of success and you know defining success what that looks like unfortunately it has been on grades graduating what job do you have what house do you live in things that maybe don't give you joy um, right. deep down inside right. they just give you a title behind mm-hmm. your name or mm-hmm. a picture
0: Dr. Rom, the thing is, and I can tell parents from experience, and I say, look, again, I'm not, I'm not throwing darts at these drugs. These are for, these are for when, when they are needed in assessments and they are used properly. I'm all for them, actually, right? Because they solve a very important problem. So we do not want to create any stigma here of people who have the actual need, who are using them as prescribed. That's the way it should be. In my case... Uh, when 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 I use them and I'm not sure they should have been prescribed. I mean, look, I I I don't I haven't been on that drug for many years, Adderall and or Vyvanse and. I, I finished a book in 17 days and I'm do not make this up last year I finished a book in 17 days and everybody's like you must have some hyper focus and I was like I do naturally you know uh, but but the what what's so interesting is that is that when I get into populations and sometimes with students and, and again it could be anywhere throughout the country and this thing comes up about subject comes up about you know stimulants and non-medical use I mean I'm talking like like 50% or more of the group is kind of raising their hand and or making eyes with me. I mean, it's that prevalent yet for some reason, it's not really scaring parents, but the truth of the matter is they have a higher tendency. I think statistics show for later developing other substance issues.
2: Yeah, the, the issue with substance use and stimulants and ADHD is also super interesting. Uh, three years ago, an international panel of experts came together to release some statements about substance use disorder and ADHD. And they found, uh, they made some statements that in children with ADHD have a dramatically higher risk of developing substance use disorder later in their life. Mm. But one way to decrease that risk was to properly treat that ADHD with stimulants. Mm.
0: Okay. interesting.
2: Having ADHD alone can be a risk factor, but having untreated Ah. ADHD is an even higher risk Ah. factor. So when talking about stimulants, using it appropriately, there is the value there. If we don't prescribe stimulants where they are Mm -hmm. needed, now these kids Mm -hmm. will have a higher risk of a substance use disorder. But we need to make sure it is only being prescribed for who needs it. And that brings me, if you don't mind me saying this, one more point that I love telling my students, and they're shocked when they hear this, is that stimulants don't help if you don't actually have ADHD. And they always don't believe me because if you take it, it feels great. Mm -hmm. It helps Mm. you stay awake all night the day before the test. And then you study and then you do Mm. well. But stimulants have been repeatedly shown to not have the same effects when you don't have ADHD. The Mm. only empirical study on this was published in 2016. And this was done in college students. And they found that the use of stimulants, so if you were not a stimulant user, but you went on to become a stimulant user, your GPA did not change at all. Wow! The only people in college whose GPA increased were the people that gave up using stimulants. That is almost counterintuitive because giving up in using stimulants involves lifestyle changes Mm -hmm. that the students had to do. And that actually helped them improve their GPA, not the stimulants itself.
1: I want to ask a little question we talked about a little bit earlier of when you take stimulants and you have this high, you kind of have to, and then you come off of and you want to fix it. The change in that internally, neurologically, however you define it, what does that do to a person?
2: The, the coming off the stimulant high or whatever yeah. you want to call it is a real problem. When you talk to patients with ADHD, and I think David referred mm. to this earlier, they hate that feeling. They mm-hmm. hate it. They hate it. And, and it is real. That's a real side effect of ADHD. Uh, in fact, for people that don't have ADHD, that want to use Adderall even once, they have a substantially higher risk of having ending up in the ER because of heart palpitations mm. or because of increased anxiety. Um, so self-medication is dangerous, mm-hmm. and it has to, one has to be careful with things like that. I'm not saying using it once will make you addicted, sure, right. but mm-hmm. but we have to recognize the risks where they are present.
0: So that's so fascinating. You're right. So you have this equation. What what you what The case you were making that the research and in medical information shows that that's why your tool, your diagnostic tool, Your the bottom line is if somebody truly has it, it can help them with a lot of issues. It can help reduce issues they may face if Mm -hmm. they're provided a stimulant. If they don't actually have it, it could introduce a host. So therefore, that's why proper diagnosing and using this effectively and not just randomly assigning a little ADHD to everyone, that's why that is so problematic.
2: Yeah, this whole stimulant as a gateway for other drug use is not is not uncommon. I won't say it is scientifically proven. There is a lot of Mm -hmm. debate in the literature about that. But the other use of stimulants among college students is not just for studying, but for partying. Mm. Because when you take a stimulant, you can drink more alcohol or use more marijuana. And that is actually incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. because you would have passed out after three drinks, now you're drinking five drinks yes. or whatever it takes, and the increase in blood alcohol concentration might cause a you know a really fatal reaction. There, yes,
0: that's what that's what we see with a lot of young populations. It's a thing. One goes with the other. They see mm-hmm. also with me, which is very interesting, and this is embarrassing to say, but I'll just speak the truth. I can't explain this, um, but for whatever reason, because I didn't, I wasn't a good candidate for it, but I got given it and it hit a spot in my brain. So I began misusing Adderall and then uh, Vyvanse when I tried to move to something else. But a strange phenomenon happened with me that, that I hear others tell me about, which is I began to really crave nicotine, and I had not been a nicotine user. Very, very strange, and and the best I can explain is, so the minute that dose of stimulant hit me, it was going to start coming down. It it was a peak, and then it would come down, and I, I feel like there was something in my brain trying to get another stimulant in there to keep it elevated, so to speak, and so... I would I would crave and I have a lot of students tell me they they encounter the same thing with vaping you know mm-hmm. where they are craving nicotine to go with it so it it I think it just opens uh, such a um difficult situation that parents you know you you have a child and you want them to excel in school you don't want them to get left behind so to speak but then the same time if you if you're pushing them on a drug or taking them to the doctor and hoping they leave with a prescription that where they haven't been properly assessed you, you are really playing with fire. I mean, it is a strong drug that, that hits the brain. I, I can remember the exact spot in my brain. I can almost point to it. When that, when that prescribed stimulant would hit my brain, I can exactly point to the spot where it would just, it was like electricity, and I felt like I was on fire, you know? And um, it, it, it's just very real. It's, it's, not, it's not mild. It is a strong drug that, that has consequences.
2: Absolutely. Chemically speaking, Adderall is not that different from meth. Wow. It's just Mm -hmm. one chemical moiety away from just Mm. meth. Mm. (sighs) Uh, So it is different, but the difference may not be as much as most people would think Mm -hmm. it is. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where, in your opinion, education, I feel like, is kind of where we need to kind of start coming at this conversation. But who needs to be educated? Like, where does the education start? How How can parents... Physicians, where, how, kind of take that, where you...
2: Yeah, I I think education is definitely a big part of this. Um, I think the education needs to be multidimensional. High schools Mm -hmm. and colleges is where I would begin with children themselves. But beyond that, we also need to talk about healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about faculty people like me. Mm -hmm. Because I'll be honest with you, in my college, I give a lot of assignments. I assign a lot of readings and exams. And guess what that does? It adds stress to students and they have unhealthy coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So yes, the students need to be taught to have more healthier coping mechanisms. But you also need to teach me Mm -hmm. not to add undue stress to my students. And curriculum bloat meaning mm-hmm. every year I want to think of more things I want to teach my students mm-hmm. because, hey, mm-hmm. I am excited Very about employment. these things. Yeah. I want them to learn this and this and this. Every year I add more topics, mm. which becomes harder and harder and harder for them to learn and cope up with. So I think faculty are definitely one part of this piece. But outside of that, even um, even law enforcement officials, there is a lot of stigma and lack of understanding of what it means to share your Adderall with somebody else. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sharing
2: Adderall is a controlled substance. It's it's illegal. Right. Mm -hmm. But students don't recognize it sometimes, and law enforcement doesn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. But law Mm -hmm. enforcement cracking down on sharing by trying to Mm -hmm. demonize it is not going to help. It's just Mm -hmm. going to drive it underground. So there is a variety of issues here. Mm -hmm. And really, I think the best thing we can do is let college students and high school students know the risks involved every time they choose to take an Adderall.
0: Yeah, that is so fascinating. You hit on multiple points that just captivated me, but I appreciate your... I really appreciate your transparency talking about what, what we face in the academic world, what students face mm-hmm. of this, you know, uh, curriculum bloat, for example. Okay, I keep getting excited about this, but I'm going to add more to them. That's what I see in K-12 through schools. I'm fortunate that I get invited to speak in a lot of K-12 through schools. And when I start talking to students at Adderall, first of all, a lot of them are on it, and some of them maybe deserve to be, but some don't. But but they're just kind of looking at me or come up afterwards and say and what's my choice? I mean, they are piling so much on me. I'm on the swim team, practice goes till late. I've got 2 hours of homework. I'm supposed to be at the young life meeting in the in the morning before school. I've got something they want me to go see my grandparents uh, after in the evening. I've got something on the weekend. I'm up trying to keep up with friends on social media. I mean, this is what all the students are telling me. We we, we we've not just had curriculum bloat. I think we've had lifestyle bloat where we look at young people and expect them to just be this amazing miracle of earth. I would have fallen out with exhaustion, you know. But when you are on a stimulant, let's be honest, if 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 you if you are given one that you don't really need, it will keep I mean, it is a stimulant. It hits your it will it will crank up your adrenaline. You will get moving. You will. It will keep you
2: moving we need to let kids be kids sometimes. You know, we just need to let kids be kids. If everything that a kid does needs to be something that goes on their CV, that's going to cause (laughs) long-term harm. That, you know, going to Harvard or Yale or MIT or wherever you want to go Mm -hmm. is not going to fix. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, I think most parents also need to recognize that. I have met a lot of students in my research that say their parents want them to go to the doctor, get diagnosed with ADHD or get a prescription so that their sibling can have some of that Adderall too. Yes. And their sibling can't get a prescription on their own, so the kid has to go get the diagnosis to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think there is pressure from parents and society as well.
0: Mhm. Mhm.
1: And I, I it's just, you know, it it's so frustrating. I think that's why we're having this conversation of like, we just, we weren't built to always be performing and we weren't built to always be performing for someone else. Like at the end of the day, these kids, this isn't what they want. Like this is not what makes them happy inside. And and, you know, they, they think it is though to make their parents happy is going to make them happy. Um, and it's just not at the end of the day and it's going to break kids sooner and sooner. And I think that's, it's just heartbreaking.
0: Well, I think the, uh, you're exactly right. And I can tell you, for me, I, I remember looking across at my daughter when I was really taking a, a high dosage of, at that time, vivance And I, I shouldn't have even been prescribed it in the first place, though I take some responsibility for that. But I remember looking across at my daughter one day and saying, I don't know if I feel anything anymore. And I'm not sure if I will ever feel anything again because it had literally sapped my emotional reaction to things and so sometimes i think of young people and it it breaks my heart to think if you know many are overprescribed and they're just walking around is having their, their, their empathy and how they can emotionally connect with others and other things. And I, it, it feels like it's not what we really want to be about, and it's not what we want our children to be about. And it, it, it's a conversation that we, we just need to have beyond today. I mean, I think culturally, we just have to look at what, what are we even aiming for, you know?
2: Yeah, the conversation around mental health becomes much more prominent when you add all those stressors to a kid's expectations. So if the expectations are high, even things that may not have been a problem start rising to the level of problem in the face of that stress. And then we start fixing them by adding medication or by diagnosing problems that should not have been diagnosed, when in reality, maybe we could have solved it by changing our expectations or letting kids be kids sometimes, right?
0: Yeah, letting kids be children be children, letting kids be kids, that is fantastic advice. Uh, Dr. Sujith Ramachandran, uh, we hope they will check out your website. Dr. Ram, you can learn more at themayolab.com about... He and his work, and you can find that great tool that you've uh, created. Hopefully, you know, maybe we'll get healthcare providers just beyond all over the world reaching out for that. You know,
2: I hope so. Uh, we we've always hoped that this is something that can have use and that that can actually help providers out there. So if I find if they are finding that it helps, I'm I'm here for it.
0: All right, Doctor Ram, thanks for joining us on the Mayo Lab podcast.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. I appreciate you guys having me.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab podcast. The Mayo Lab podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, David McGee, Alexis Lee, and Slade Lewis. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones. And our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee, we need your help. Tell others about it. And we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of David McGee and guests of the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.